Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, as you can see from this crowd, we've been anticipating this event. We've been very excited to be discussing this book for a very, very, very long time. Um, and uh, uh, what's been really great about this is just the discussion um, that's been happening in the store among patrons and the community. Um, Janet Reitman is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, where her cover story, Inside Scientology, was, fi was a finalist for the National Magazine Award in 2007. Oh, look, a little baby likes that. <laughs> Someday you want to be nominated for the National Magazine Award. Uh, she has covered the Iraq War and has reported on conflicts in Sierra Leone, Sudan, Haiti, and Zimbabwe. Her work has appeared in GQ, Men's Journal, Los Angeles Times Magazine, ESPN, Life, uh, Life Marie Claire, and the Washington Post. Yeah. So, in, in other words, she's a pro. So. She's a pro and she knows what she's doing. Um, uh, she is a graduate of uh, UC Santa Cruz, yay Santa Cruz, and uh, holds a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Janet Reitman. Uh, I need my book. <laughs> Thank you. Hey. So. Oh my God, there are so many people here for a bookstore. Thank you so much for coming. Can you guys, is this, can you hear me? Is this on? Is that my friend from high school? Hi! There's so many women I haven't seen. Yeah, you were. Please don't even remind me of that. Now I'm going to feel embarrassed for tonight. Um, so how I am... And you have a dog, which is, just makes me so happy. So I want to apologize to anybody who tried to come and see me last night at Book Soup. I was, I've been getting over a really bad cold and uh, was really sick. And I'm going to hopefully make it through this one tonight. But somebody asked me on Facebook whether I was, I was intimidated out of doing the reading. So no, <laughs> I wasn't. And, um, ugh, and I'm here now. Um, just before I start, how many people are familiar with Scientology? So I... Alrighty then. Yeah. Okay. This is a friendly crowd. I don't know. I did. I no. You know why? Because I did a reading in um, San Francisco, and at the at a huge like community center, there was a ton of people there, and it was kind of split between people who knew a lot about Scientology and people who knew nothing. And one lady got up in the middle and was like really upset. <laughs> that she still didn't understand certain things. So I felt like, I, I don't know if I have to go over the basics or what. So just make sure. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit, I'm going to talk a little bit, and then I want to answer questions because I tend to find that people have tons of questions and we don't always have time, so I want to make sure to do that. Um, so I'm going to read from the beginning of my book, um, which is my very first experience with Scientology in 2005. And just to preface this, I knew nothing. I'm a Rolling Stone writer, as you just heard, and not somebody who ever covered religion or covered pop culture even. I was, I'm an investigative reporter and I covered foreign affairs and just had no clue. So, so, um, so this was my, but I was, you know, intending on, on doing an investigative story on Scientology. Um, I had, basically written to the church itself in, uh, I guess it was the spring or the early summer of 05, and said, I'd like to do this story. Can I hang out with you guys? Um, can I do an embed with you, which is what I'd been doing in Iraq prior to that? Um, and they said, of course, no. Um, and so I then said, okay, I will 
just start this on my own and the first thing I wanted to do was to get the experience of what it would be like for somebody to just walk into a church off the street what, what, what would they experience so I went in and, and uh, basically did not tell them I was a writer and this is what happened so the limestone and granite church of Scientology in Midtown Manhattan is located just northwest of Times Square at 227 West 46th Street Blending in seamlessly amid Broadway, theaters, restaurants, and hotels, the place is very easy to miss, though it is seven stories tall, and marked with a, a large metal awning proclaiming Scientology in gold letters. At various times during the year, clusters of attractive young men and women are posted on nearby street corners, where they offer free stress tests or hand out flyers. Ranging in, excuse me, ranging in age from the late teens to the early 20s, they are dressed as conservatively as young bank executives. On a hot July morning several years ago, I was approached by one of these clear-eyed young men. Hey, he said with a smile, do you have a minute? He introduced himself as Emmett. We're showing a film down the street, he said, and casually pulling a glossy postcard-sized flyer from the stack he held in his hand. It's about Dianetics. Have you ever heard of it? I looked at the handout, which featured a large exploding volcano, instantly familiar from the Dianetics commercials that played on local television stations when I was a teenager. The flyer, which invited me to come and see the free introductory film, and it read, showing now, bring your friends, proclaimed that Dianetics, the modern science of mental health, was the most popular book on the mind ever written, and a bestseller for over 50 years, with over 25 million copies in circulation in 50 languages on Earth. Okay, I said. Whoops. Great. A huge grin spread across Emmett's face. He escorted me across the street. Inside the church, two young women in long skirts stood by the reception desk. Like Emmett, they seemed to be about 20, had blonde hair, and looked freshly scrubbed, reminding me of Mormon missionaries. They led me down a set of marble steps, and we entered the main lobby, a large glossy space with lighting that bathed everything in a pinkish golden glow. Aside from my guides and me, it was completely empty. The room appeared to be set up as a Scientology museum. Books by Scientology's founder, L. Ron Hubbard, more than 50 of them, lined the walls, as did black and white photos of the man, all presenting him as a robust patriarch with graying sideburns and a benevolent smile, dressed in a sport jacket and ascot. Love his, I love, actually love Hubbard's ascots. Um, it's very dapper. But far more prominent than Hubbard was Tom Cruise. Projected on a large video panel, his image dominated the space. Earnest, handsome, dressed in a black turtleneck, looking directly in the camera, and apparently giving a testimonial to the faith. What Cruz was actually saying, however, I couldn't tell. His words were almost completely drowned out by the sound of myriad other videos playing simultaneously nearby. The Church of Scientology, unlike other houses of worship, did not invite somber reflection on his beliefs, but rather offered a technological wonderland. Music videos promoting the group's uh, Youth for Human Rights campaign played alongside infomercials extolling the wonders of Dianetics, which appeared alongside videos and documentary-style reports on the great work of Scientology's volunteer ministers at Ground Zero, which played next to a video of Tom Cruise receiving an award for outstanding service. I was escorted into a small screening room to watch the free introductory film. And this turned out to be a high-quality, rather long infomercial featuring a cast of ostensibly real people who explained how Dianetics had changed their lives and improved their health dramatically, curing them of ailments ranging from brain cancer to depression. It was 15 minutes of fantastic and totally outlandish claims, and yet each testimonial was presented in such a reasonable way that in spite of myself, I felt kind of hopeful. After the film, a woman came into the screening room and told me that she'd like me to fill out a questionnaire. Lori, as she introduced herself, was a matronly woman of about 50. She began her pitch gently. Tell me about yourself, she said. What made you interested in Scientology? Over the next hour or so, Lori asked me a series of questions. Was I married? Was I happy? What were my goals? Did I feel like I was living up to my potential? She exuded warmth and was resolutely non-aggressive. And to my amazement, I began to open up to her, telling her about my relationship with my boyfriend and my desire to quit smoking. In response, Lori delivered a soft sell for Scientology's introductory package, uh, which is a four-hour seminar and 12 hours of Dianetics auditing, which is a form of counseling that costs $50. You don't have to do it, Lori said. It's just something I get the feeling might help you. And she patted my arm and squeezed it. 
<laughs> Lori also had me take the two-hour, excuse me, the 200-question Oxford Capacity Analysis, Scientology's well-known personality test, which poses such questions as, do you often sing or whistle just for the fun of it? And just, do you sometimes feel that your age is against you? Too old or too young or too old? <laughs> Yike. After looking at my test, Lori told me that I had blocks in communication but was basically confident, though I did seem to suffer from nonspecific anxiety. These are all things... <laughs> How true, it's so true. These are all things, it's, it's totally, who doesn't? <laughs> These are all things we can help you with, she said and smiled. It's really such a good thing that you came in, she added as she took my credit card. You'll see. On Monday, I returned to the church to begin my $50 package. My partner in auditing was named David. Sitting down across from me, he asked me to relive a moment of physical pain. Don't choose, any, excuse me, don't choose something that's too stressful, he suggested. I closed my eyes and I concentrated, but try as I might, I could not relive much of anything. Nothing. Zero. Uh, and after 15 minutes, I gave up. I'm a total failure at auditing, guys. I really am. Um, Waiting just outside the room was Jane, a Scientology registrar who told me she was now handling my case, quote unquote. A redhead dressed in jeans and a lightweight blouse, she asked me how it went. I'm not sure this is for me, I said. A lot of people feel that way when they first start auditing. It's not unusual, Jane said soothingly, all the while steering me away from the exit. She walked me down a long hall and into her office where, on her desk, lay the results of my personality test. Jane studied them a bit. What you need is something more personal, she said. See, she, she, excuse me, she suggested life repair, a $2,000 package of one-on-one -on -one private auditing sessions, which she said would help me handle my everyday problems. And then after I finished life repair, which could take a month or so, I could get right to the bridge of total freedom. Uh, the British Total Freedom, which Jane explained, was how people really made gains, or had wins, as she called them. How much do you think people spend on psychotherapy, Jane asked me. We're in New York City, remember. I, I replied that it varied. In New York, $150 to $250 could be standard for a 45-minute session. Auditing, she said, was much cheaper. Auditing sessions were sold in 12 and a half hour blocks known as intensives. One intensive, she said, cost $750, half the price of therapy hour for hour. It's worth it, I promise you, she said. I'll think about it, I told her. Jane seemed disappointed. We should get you going as soon as possible, she said. I really want you to have a win. That was my first experience. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, so then after, after, I'll just tell you what happened after that. So after that, I, I take my little stuff and I go back to my Rolling Stone office where I go into my editor's office and I go, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't understand like what the big deal is, honestly. I mean, they're nice. And the, so I, I'm like, you know, maybe they're, I, I didn't get it. I thought, they're nice. Like this woman, Jane, was a smoker, you know, with a, like a raspy voice and she was struggling with all these other issues in her life. And I thought, you know, she's like a fellow traveler. Like they're, they're, they're appealing to me in the nicest of ways. They seem like they genuinely want to help. They're normal. You know, they, they don't, you know, they live in other parts of the city. They, you know, I just didn't understand anything at all. Um, and my editor said, oh my God. <laughs> 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 and I'm an agnostic, right? So I'm like, you know, despite having a bat mitzvah that Sue attended. <laughs> the last time I was in a temple, probably. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. Um, uh, yeah, so I was, they were like, oh my God, you've been taken. And I said, no, no. What? Oh no, I can keep, I like it on my lap, thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna grab my tea though. Um, and so I, uh, I thought, all right, well, I'm going to continue, obviously, continue this. And um, what I decided to do, having, having done this little bit of undercover reporting um, afterwards, after I left the church, I would, like, scribble my notes, like, really copiously, like, in some out, literally, like, you know, in some alley, like, really near there, so I wouldn't forget anything that had just happened. Um, I decided to go to Clearwater, Florida, which, if you don't know, is the ecclesiastic home of the Church of Scientology, like the you know, um, the Mecca, as they would call it, or the, um, the sort of temple square, or, um, you know, 
Salt Lake City or Provo, Utah, um, of the church. And um, so I went down there, and I was, you know, going to basically go and visit the Flag Land Base, as it is called, which is the um, the hub of the Church of Scientology overall in terms of its ecclesiastic headquarters, meaning that this is if you want to really like ascend to the very heights of the church, if you want to get the very best auditing, and if you want to do the very best courses and counseling and everything, and be in a Scientology community, you go to this place. So, and I was going to say, I'm a reporter, I'm with Rolling Stone, we're doing a big story, show me around. You know? No, no, they did it. They, no, they did it. This was, this is, no, you know, I'm here to tell you, I'm a reporter that got a lot of great access to the church and, and had some really fascinating conversations with a lot of these um, officials who today claim I never spoke to them. Um, <laughs> I have it on tape and <laughs> can provide transcripts if needed. Um, uh, however, I, uh, my first, so I, so I, I, you know, I fly into Tampa, I decide to stay in Clearwater Beach, I've been like advised by a couple of people who I've now been in contact with who are, um, uh, a guy named, um, who did I speak to? Now I'm forgetting. A couple of, I'm trying, I'm not remember, well, a couple of different experts and people who sort of knew about Scientology gave me a little bit of advice on what to do. I decided to stay in Clearwater Beach at this Hilton Hotel, which is right over the causeway, right over this little bridge from downtown Clearwater from Flag. And uh, so I go to the Hilton and I, I asked the guy, actually, the, the one of the porters or um, the concierge about you know, Scientology and where they were. And I was, you know, he's like, oh, well, I don't, we don't go over there. <laughs> And I was like, what do you mean you don't go over there? They're like, no, we just stay over here in Clearwater Beach. Like, we don't really go over there. You know, it's, it's, it's a little weird over there. And, um, and I didn't know this because the, the route from the airport to Clearwater Beach at the time w rerouted itself around downtown Clearwater so you didn't see it at all. It was a total, um, it was this, you know, diverted route. So it went through a different part of town. So... Anyway, I, I decided to drive over, and I, it was a Sunday, and I thought, I'm going to just check out downtown and see who I meet. And I went, and I decided I was really, really hot. It was like 95 degrees, and I went to a, the Starbucks, which is situated right around the corner from the Fort Harrison Hotel, which is the, was at the time the hub of the, the church there. And um, I go up to order my cappuccino or frappuccino, and I talk to the barista. And I sort of started chatting with this girl. She's a young, you know, like 20 years old, 22 years old or something. And, um, and she was, uh, I told her I was a reporter, and she herself was a journalism wannabe, a you know, journalism student, I think. And she really wanted to ask me questions, so she took a break, and we sat down at a table, and I said, you know, I'm here to write about Scientology. Um, oh, I have a friend who's in Scientology, and I can introduce you to her, and she did. And this friend became one of the characters in my book, named, uh, a woman named Natalie Wallet, who's um, somebody I've known for years now, but um, she asked me all kinds of questions about what I was doing and what I, you know, what, like I just sort of tried to chat her up about the community. And as I was doing this, I noticed that this guy sitting next to us, sort of aside from us, all of a sudden sort of grabbed his phone and got up and walked to the side of the patio that we were sitting on and made a phone call and like kind of looked suspicious. And I didn't really, you know, I just sort of saw it out of the corner of my eye. Like a, a minute, no joke, a minute later, a minute, a woman shows up at my table wearing a cape in 90-something degree weather. It's Florida, all right? It's West Florida. I mean, it's so hot and sticky and everything. A cape, a reddish cape. She's an African-American woman with very short hair. And she unfurls her cape, and she takes out, she reaches into her pocket, and she takes out this business card, and she flaps it on the table. And it's, her name is Pat Harney, the, uh, who people know, the spokesperson of the Church of Scientology of, of Clearwater. And she goes, we heard you were in town. Uh, so, I always like to tell, and then, actually, <laughs> I kind of like freaked out and said, oh my god, you know, hi, I was going to call you tomorrow, it's Sunday, I didn't think you'd be around today, I'm thinking, oh, that's stupid, it's Sunday, you know, um, and, uh, 
Uh, so I made my little appointment to get together with her the next day. When, during and after that, I did go and visit with them and took a tour and all this other stuff and had a really interesting experience of touring around with them. But, um, but after she left, I still was like kind of clueless and the girl that I was, the M Malia was her name, this little, uh, this barista, she's just like laughing at me and she sort of, no, she pointed to the long row of cameras posted on the top of all the buildings up and down this main street that the Starbucks is situated on Cleveland Street and around, going around the corner to the church's building and she's like, oh, you don't know. <laughs> So those are my two initial experiences with Scientology. The first was that I don't see what's wrong with these people. This all seems really nice. They're really friendly. I don't know. I don't believe what they believe. This auditing stuff doesn't really work for me, but whatever. And the other side of it was, oh my God, this is the creepiest thing I've ever heard of in my life. You know, do I have to be looking over my shoulder all the time? And, um, and so, you know, and those are the two... Basically, those are the two perspectives that I think people have. That either, what's the big deal, or they're the scariest, creepiest, most litigious, horrible, awful, fucked up group there is in the world. And you must be so fucking scared, and I can't believe you're the bravest person ever to have written this book. Okay? It's total bullshit. I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not that brave. I'm whatever. I'm myself. But um, I really wanted to do a book, and I wrote the article first and then did the book to kind of say well what, like what's the truth about this group and um, and like what's real about them and 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 you know as I write in the book to sort of separate the truth from the fact I mean the the myth from the fact and I made a really serious endeavor to do that and um, and what I found was something that was in lots of ways really surprising to me um, that you know Scientology is um, in certain ways has a lot of aspects to it that are um, similar to mainstream Western religions there's aspects very much aspects that I I mean I'm Jewish but I thought I know a lot of Catholics and my boyfriend is a Catholic and recovering Catholic and I was like there's a lot of Catholic elements in this in this confession stuff they do and you know there was a, like a lot of strains of other faiths that I found that were and especially in terms of their morals that were not completely off base from what many of us believe. Um, and I was really struck by the number of people that I met in Scientology that were really smart, intelligent, you know, successful, um, interesting people. And, um, and I wanted to know why they, why, how they got into this and if it was supposed to be so bad and you know what was kind of keeping them there and so what I did in the book was I told the, the history of Scientology but I tried to really focus a lot on how it evolved and culturally you know and how this church one of the things I found that was really super interesting about the church was how it attached itself really shrewdly to the trends of the era in order to get people in so it, it attached itself to pop psychology it attached itself to the new age movement it attached itself to the recovery movement to you know various aspects of our 20th century, early 21st century culture in order to bring in members. I think today that it is not doing a very good job of that, but it did a very good job of it in the 60s and the 70s and the 50s, 60s, 70s and into the 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I wrote a pretty balanced book um, and, um, and just found a fascinating community of people that, um, that I still, you know, endeavor to truly understand and, and uh, for those of them who believe in Scientology today, I, I, I wish them all the luck in the world, actually. Um, so, but I, rather than me blabbering on, because I could really do that for a long time, why don't we just take a bunch of questions, because I'm sure there must be a lot of them. Hello, you. The man in the, man in the hat. Sure. I've read those biographies. Um, I also read the books about Jack Parsons. Um, 
the George Pendle book, which I, um, if I looked at my bibliography, I'd give you the title of it. It's fantastic. No, there was, but Bareface Messiah was the biography of Hubbard. Um, I also, in doing the research for this book, I, I should tell you that I did a tremendous amount of research and I did have to read some of these biographies and books about Scientology um, that uh, are not as um, well sourced perhaps in mine. And I, I guess I should also bring up that, I'm trying to make sure that this is really on, um, that there is really no objective history of the Church of Scientology. No one has ever done that. There have been writers who have tried, um, and I know some of them, and their work is really, really good, but they, um, and they would say this themselves, that, that over the period of their reporting, they either started with a bias or they developed a definite bias in the process of that whole experience for various reasons, usually having to do with being harassed or intimidated. Um, out of writing this material, um, so as a result, it's hard to, to get in a, you know get it, you know sort of go to the Scientology canon, and and do your scholarly research, which you're supposed to do if you're writing anything historical, um, and it's really frustrating. So um, what I had to do was I read you know some of these books. I also read Mike Davis's History of L.A. Um, who I, I just think he's fantastic, and I read a lot of him, and I read, um, you know, early histories of LA, um, lots of like great books about Los Angeles, um, and also this this book by George Pendle, which is a, a biography of of Jack Parsons, who was this um, brilliant rocket scientist who was also a secret wizard, and he was the a representative of Aleister Crowley's here in the U.S. In, excuse me, in, in Los Angeles, he was a he ran this um, at their esoteric group here in LA and Hubbard um, after the war, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of the church after the war went to um, live with Jack Parsons in his home in Pasadena and got involved with this group and um, and now the question was did he derive Scientology from it and I think you know the thing is is that Scientology's structure is esoteric it's what it's based on what they call the Western esoteric tradition, which is a, a gra you know, gradual knowledge, this idea of ascending higher and higher and having something held up to you like a carrot for you to keep going and going and going. Um, and and that you know this idea that the, the higher up you go, the more enlightened you go, and you become more and more self-actualized is this very Eastern idea. And so the Orlo or Orlo Templi Orient Orient. Dude, I totally can't pronounce it. You know what I'm saying, the OTO. Um, the, the Jack Parsons and Aleister Crowley group is an esoteric group. So is Scientology in, in its structure. There are certain elements, I think, of the OTO, um, of, of uh, the Crowley's religion, the Thelema, as it's called, that are reflective of Scientology. But I don't know, I mean, I've spoken to um, scholars who are really experts in this, who don't really believe that there's that, you know, direct of a correlation that he drew it from, um, you know, Crowley. What I do though know is that L. Ron Hubbard borrowed from everybody. Um, he was a great adapter. I, I basically personally consider Alan Hubbard rather a genius. He was a, a kind of an, an incredible, whatever else you want to say about the guy, he was brilliant. And he, he, he packaged something, he packaged this religion that he came up with um, in a way that, and sold it like soap to, to you know, thousands and tens of thousands and millions apparently at one point or another of people, which is pretty brilliant. And, you know, and he did it um, by cherry-picking the things that he found most interesting from all different researchers, all different books that he read. He was an amazing researcher and, um, and had one of those manic personalities where he could absorb people that have that level of mania, that kind of, and I'm sure if there are writers in the room, they can all connect to that when you're in that frenzy, um, which doesn't mean you don't have to be bipolar to be in that frenzy. I am firmly convinced that it just happens to you. But um, you can just absorb an unbelievable amount, and this guy was a guy that could do that. And he, uh, he took a lot, of, a lot of stuff from a lot of different people, a lot of very smart people throughout the ages, and combined it all to create this belief system. And I think he did that with Crowley, but I don't think that it's directly, you know, I don't think it's black magic, but I know that there are some people that do believe that. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that, though. Yes. You're welcome. 
Thanks. Isn't that entertaining? Right. And the interesting thing is, if you read the reviews, there are people who are Scientologists now who practice Scientology and support your book. Yeah. You know, which is, but they're not followers of the church now with, with right. miscaptions in his machine. Like, you know, my mom left the Catholic Church because she's a the book. Right. The interesting thing is, they love your book, but are they skipping the Old Testament? Are they skipping the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, they're like going, oh, I'm still a Scientologist, but there's still some, some information there about L. Ron Hubbard and the things that he did that weren't as nice, you know, you know. Are you, oh, let me, wait, wait, let me make sure. I, they're, like, um, they're, they're supporting the book. Right. They're the miscavish part, so I guess skipping the first part. No, 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 they're supporting, no, yeah, they're overlooking, they believe in it, the, they're, they're like the Jews, they're like, they're like, you know what, we don't want to be Christian anymore, we hate Jesus, we're going to go back to being Jewish. Because that's the root. That's what there's. That's kind of what they're doing. They're like, look, we don't like this guy. That's our, you know. I consider Miscavige like the Brigham Young of the church. He's, uh, if you know anything about the Mormon faith, he's, you know, Joseph Smith was the founder of Mormonism. He was this very visionary guy that many people thought was a charlatan, and but nonetheless, he was cr tremendously charismatic and built this amazing group. Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, all these. You know, it, you don't have to be a any guru is, has these character traits. You don't have to be, you can be, you know, exactly. You could say, you know, Jim Jones was a guy that everybody followed and was amazingly charismatic and had that thing. Uh, yeah, the list goes on and on. Yeah, the list goes on and on. But, you know, but in terms of, you know, historically, um, there's a lot, of, there, I saw certain similarities to Joseph Smith and then specifically Brigham Young because he took over from Smith when Smith was killed and was a very different character but had a very different, had a very specific vision which was to take this creation and bring it into a modern period and to, to bring it into the, 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 the contemporary world and to legitimize it, which they, they did. Yeah, some of them, yeah. But so what, so in any event. Yeah, no, of course he did. But the point is, so what I'm saying is that what they are, what, what the people that you're talking about are doing is they're going, they're focusing very much on the, um, the current leadership and saying that we hate this leadership, but they valued the other stuff. And, you know, it, it, I don't know, I, I personally know people who have, uh, who consider themselves Scientologists, who follow L. Ron, who believe in L. Ron Hubbard, who still love L. Ron Hubbard, who have, you know, beseeched people like them to read the book and to embrace their history. And I think that's fantastic because if they do that, you know, he did some terrible things. He was a brilliant guy, I think, and he was also nuts, probably, and he did a lot of awful things, and clearly he did some good things because a lot of people love him and still, you know, find good things in him. And I'm not really, you know, I'm not, it's not my role, I didn't know the man, to judge him in that way. It's not my role to judge at all. But, I think it's really fantastic that a, an organization that has um, made a, a career essentially on denying its history, that, it, that people who still embrace a lot of Scientology will go and tell people that they know and love to go and embrace their history, because that's what this is, you know, and so, yeah, you know, bravo <laughs> to all of them, honestly. Um, but yeah, I mean, they are not, there are lots of people that are holding on to L. Ron Hubbard and, Clint, you know, they, they hold on to that, they see him as the, the source and that they see Miscavige as kind of the pretender. Do you think, uh, that, um, do you think it's time to change because if you know, No, I never would have been published. There's no way. No way. Yeah. Hi, um, Conrad. We actually uh, spoke. We we're friends with um, Eric Rice. Eric Rice. Eric Rice. Oh, Evan. Uh, anyway, we, we spoke a while back about the uh, cover groups, and I wanted to yeah. talk about uh, some of the cover groups and some of the things you you learned about that. Where is Where is Evan? He should come to my damn reading. Former colleague. Like, oh, I support his book. Um, 
<laughs> Evan Wright was the man who encouraged me to write a book. He's like, you got to stop this magazine and write a book. So I said, all right, I, I guess I'll do it. Um, you want to know about the, the, the social betterment programs? Well, like the front groups, as you might call them, or cover groups? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot uh, of, of these cover groups. And we, we spoke about the, uh, the potential for, for drawing in celebrities. Uh, then uh, and not know, have any idea that they're involved in the group, only to later perhaps find out and then somewhat be, be in. And, uh, right. Well, okay, so, so one of the aspects of Scientology that um, uh, you probably know of in LA are there are a number of these organizations that are, have different, completely different names. They have buildings actually right on like Sunset on Hollywood Boulevard, um, ABLE. Uh, which would incorporate a group called Applied Scholastics and Narconon, which is their drug rehab program, Criminon, which is a criminal uh, prison rehabilitation program, um, the, um, the illustrious Citizens Commission for Human Rights, whose building and whose great and glorious museum down the street, I just is my favorite museum ever. <laughs> Please all go. I'm, t I'm like, because I'm, I'm talking to like an LA crowd, I can, make f I can sort of make fun of this a little bit, sorry. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, an experience, to say the least, to go there. Um, it puts the anti-abortionists uh, to shame, uh, or the, yeah, you know what I mean, the uh, pro-life movement to shame. Um, but uh, anyway, the, um, there are a number of these organizations that promote social betterment and they are ways that Scientology spread its ideas into society. Again, just to put this in context, so do other organizations that are affiliated with other religions. It's not unique to the Church of Scientology. It's one way that religions gain legitimacy in the secular world is to do good for people that are not part of their own faith. Um, and so uh, what, but what Scientology does is very specific. They have a number of these programs. They're very targeted. They're particularly doing a lot of work in drug rehab right now, and they have these clinics all over the country and all over the world that claim a great success rate getting people off of drugs. And, um, you know, I, to answer your question, um, celebrities do not get involved in those programs without knowing what they are. Celebrities... Uh, who are part of the church are asked to sign their names to these programs to, to become a sponsor of some of these programs as a way to promote the programs as part of their promotional responsibility. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, well, I mean, the church itself is uses celebrities as part of the strategy of the celebrity to um, as their promotional, great promotional tools for the church. And so... Um, in terms of, you know, one of the roles that they have besides going out into the public and just talking about being a Scientologist, they promote the good works of the church. And so they represent some of these groups. So you have people like Kirstie Alley or Juliette Lewis or Kelly Preston promoting, um, you know, uh, you know lobbying against psychiatry, um, promoting the Narconon program, promoting the Applied Scholastics program, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Tom Cruise is very involved in doing that. Isaac Hayes is very involved in doing that, and so that's one of those. That's one of their roles. Yes. What's the uh, political agenda of the church? You know what? Uh, it's a little hard to say. I mean, I actually think that the, um, uh, you know. I don't really know. I mean, I honestly, I know Scientologists who've, they want power, period. I think they're more on the Democratic side of the scale than on the Republican side of the scale, but you just, you're shaking your head. Yeah, are they more, you know what, you might be a bit more informed on that than me. I mean, they, certainly there are people that I know who are. I'm an ex, and when we were in New York, um, very much so when Gore's wife, you know, Tipper was on Prozac, so many people came up to me and said, you cannot vote for Al Gore because I was pro-Gore. Mm. You cannot because they're going to get everybody taking psych drugs. I said, that's not what this platform is going to be. It's like someone very high up at Celebrity Center in New York. She's like, you cannot. I said, yes, I can vote for him. You don't know what you're talking about. And these people are warmongers on the right. And they're like, no, no, no. We have to vote on the right. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so it's the psych drugs. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. 
So, okay, so she made a very, thank you. Made a good point. No, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think, sorry. Oh, uh, to add to that, I'm thinking that the people that I know that are involved in Scientology mm -hmm. spend way too much time studying Scientology to develop political... That's what I was going to say. My, my, yeah, what I was going to say is it's, it's different. I mean, I'm currently reporting on the Christian right, and uh, I'm very late on this story. Sorry, my editors. Um, and I've been, you know, trying to understand the, mind, the mentality of the evangelical movement in the same way, in a way, that I try to understand Scientologists. And, you know, when you look at the evangelical movement, I mean, they are very, they are connected. They're not, they, they will claim, too, that they don't care. They're, they're not about the party. They're about what they believe, but they, what they believe has been so embraced by the right that there's no choice, really. I mean, it's very clear what they're going to be um, in science. And, and they're also very concerned with taking the world that we are in right now, this world, and turning it into their kind of world. Well, Scientology is as well, but at the same time as they believe in taking the secular world and making it a Scientology world, a theocracy in their theocratic way. They are also deep, so deeply paranoid of this world, which they call the WOG world, that they isolate, and they've been in this isolated bubble, and so what they live in is a kind of parallel universe to our world. They don't engage in the same way that you see other religious groups engaging in the world. And so politically, you know, I don't see them as being, and I may be wrong, I actually, you know, honestly, um, I have a questions, a lot of questions about this, but I don't see them as being a political force in the way that I do see, um, you know, the, you know, really any, whether it's the, the Zionist movement, whether it's the evangelical movement, whether, it, you know, there are other, um, there are other, you know, pressure groups, religious pressure groups out there that really do have an impact in politics, in U.S. politics, and I'm not sure about Scientology because I think that they are really, aside from the psychiatric agenda, they're really so focused on them, themselves and they're so paranoid of the rest of us in so many ways that I just don't see that really integrating. Um, you, Mr. In the, in, the, in the flannel shirt, hi. They're, they're like, I mean, you guys, some of these people in the room are, are former members, so I'm going to say what I believe, but you guys can correct me. Here's what I believe from what I've studied. I think they are totally anti-gay. I think they, the gay marriage would be an aberration to them because marriage is, you know, about procreation and it's between a man and a woman and being gay is, you know, seen as a flaw as a defect. It's one of many defects that we can all have that you can fix. And, you know, a person enters into Scientology and if they're gay, they work on fixing that in the same way that we would work on fixing something else. And if you don't want to fix that, then you shouldn't really be in Scientology. It's going to continue to be problematic for you. Um, so, you know, that said, you know, they will tell you that they're perfectly okay with gay people. But, I've never met any Scientologist that's told me that they are okay with gay people, and certainly David Miscavige is known to be very um, homophobic, according to you know his associates. Okay. All right, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Yeah. You see this, guys? You yeah. see where this goes? No, we're with him. <laughs> 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 okay. Thanks. <laughs> right? Am I right? You guys think I'm right? The aberration part, I also agree with that, but I felt like um, it wasn't so much as like holding people accountable. Like, they can't help it if they're gay. It's okay. They're okay people. They just have this little thing that can be fixed. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, they're these really scary people that the right would Right, they're not sinners like in the same way. But like, you know, I've been asked a lot in interviews lately, well, always about, you know, the various celebrities that, you know, who are rumored to be gay and are they, you know, really just in the church because they're protecting, they're sheltering them from being gay. They're sheltering the gays. To which I said, I don't know, what the, what the, what do you mean sheltering? That was such a strange question that somebody asked me yesterday. But, um, yeah, I don't know, it just... I, I, I didn't, I see it more like that. They were not seen as, 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 sin, as just tremendously sinful as uh, you might in other versions. You and the, uh, hi. Um, quick sure. Your research, do you, do you come across with any openly gay 
I met a guy that was, well, I met an ex-Scientologist who was, who I guess entered into the church wanting to be cured of being gay and never was, and he sued them. <laughs> he went all the way up to OT8 and, and, and sued him. Um, yeah, Michael Pattinson, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you, I just saw you venturing out from the bookshelf, hi. Before the research reporters felt either like threatened or intimidated looking into Scientologists, I want to ask you how you saw that, if, if you did in any way, and if so, how did you feel that? Um, in terms of being intimidated? Yeah, or being threatened for investigating into Scientology. I, all right, I, that's a question everybody asks me, and that's a good question. Um, sure, he wants to know how. Well, I'll just I'll just explain this. He wants to understand about the, the issue of being threatened and intimidated. So the history of the Church of Scientology with reporters. Reporters are considered suppressive people, meaning we're evil. Um, we are mean them harm, as do anyone as is anyone who is a critic or in, who wants to investigate the church in any way. Um, but particularly people like us. And in the past, reporters who you know, were not treated well by Scientology, they were investigated, they were harassed, they were sued, um, and uh, their books were shut down, they were... Um, I thought somebody was heckling me for saying that. Was that? <laughs> it's a baby plant. It's a baby plant. <laughs> Um, you know, they were just—they were just given a seriously hard time, and um, and you know, and I have to tell you that having interviewed a lot of these reporters, I have such sympathy for them. I mean, I I can't imagine what they went through, and it's like, um, and and I, it just must have been horrible, and I, it was very damaging. I mean, I was asked to be on a panel with, um, or actually I, was, I did a talk in San Francisco that I mentioned, and a woman named Paulette Cooper who wrote a fantastic book, a 1970 book about Scientology that was very, very critical, uh, called The Scandal of Scientology. But it was very well researched. It was an amazingly researched book. She did a great job. Um, she was asked to be on it with me, and she was nervous about it because she'd been in engaged in so much litigation with them in the past. She just didn't want to get involved in any way. You know, and she's like in her 60s, and. I mean, it was just amazing, you know, she's like, uh, just, it's, this is years in the past now, and it definitely affected her, and I felt really badly about that. Um, but I have to say that my experience was different. Um, I uh, had the experience of, um, when I began to report on Scientology, um, actually after I came back from this Clearwater trip I told you about, uh, Tom Cruise called the magazine. And um, allegedly talked to report. This is the word is what I was told was that Tom called the magazine, talked to our um, publisher, editor, founder, um, and uh, said that I was an immature, lying, young reporter or something, something which I'm not. And uh, I was like, thanks for the compliment, there, Tom. Um, and uh, basically tried to discredit me. Um, and that didn't work, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, Mike, a guy named Mike Rinder, who is now no longer a top official, but used to be the head of the Office of Special Affairs, which is the church's legal investigative wing, and also the spokesman of the church. Um, he visited our magazine uh, on on Sixth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan with his, Tom Cruise's sister and Leanne Devet, and they came and had a um, visited, uh, tried to talk to my editor. And they had, I think, one or two meetings. And um, in one of those meetings, I had to go sit in, the, in another office like a bad girl while they met with all the boys. It was really, really interesting, actually. Um, it was seriously, they met with all my male editors, and I sat in the other room like, you know. Um, and they were trying to control the coverage. They were trying to tell them that I was, you know, irresponsible or whatever they were trying to say. They were trying to discredit me, which is a classic technique that they use. And that didn't work. So then they tried to just basically hover, um, which is something that they have done, the church officials have done with other reporters to in, try to influence our coverage in some way or another or shape the coverage. That didn't work either. Um, and what I was doing during this period was petitioning them for more access which they refused to give. Um, about midway through the reporting that uh, I was doing on that magazine article, I knew I was going to write a book. Uh, 
I'm going to tell you in a second. I wanted to, I wanted to talk to, um, well, I wanted to meet David Miscavige. I mean, I asked numerous times, obviously, and I wanted, to, I wanted to tour the international base. I wanted to go and meet young Sea Org members out here in California and interview them. Um, I wanted to go to the school, the Delphi School, and interview people there. Um, you know, I was really interested. My, my Rolling Stone story dealt a lot with um, uh, the, you know, what Scientology is about through the eyes of kids and what it's about to grow up in Scientology. And I was really moved by the experience of children, of young people, and still am. Um, really, that's what made me want to do the book was because I was so struck by the experiences of some of the, the people I met, you know, the, um, like, young, they were young women in their early 20s and guys in their teens and 20s who I met who I just couldn't believe their stories, really. And, um... So I went to, um, I would try to get this access and was repeatedly just put off. And, yeah, we're working on it. And, uh, you know. And then what, what I, meanwhile, was compiling all this information. I felt like I, I think I'm going to probably try to write a book. I have a lot of this stuff that I'm not even going to be able to use for the article. And um, at the 11th hour, we were putting, we were closing this article, as we call it. We were fact-checking it. And I was really dissatisfied with it. I thought, this isn't really good. I don't really have enough. I don't have them. I don't have, you know, I wanted more from them. And um, we called, I called Mike Rinder or emailed Mike Rinder and said, here are my questions. And at that, he, he really all of a sudden said, okay, we're going to give you the access. And he had me come out to California. And I spent three days, uninterrupted days, with him and Tommy Davis, who then became the spokesman of the church later on. Tommy was at the time his underling. And they took me everywhere I wanted to go and answered every question in the book that I had. And so that was um, unprecedented and... Um, and it's never been replicated by anybody else. And, um, uh, you know, it informed every page of my book and it, it informed the magazine article. I think it's what made the magazine article so good. Um, but um, I was not harassed. Uh, after that story came out, I had no problems with the church. There were no lawsuits. There was nothing. Um, there, was a, there was actually a phone call from Rinder to me personally saying he thought I did a pretty good job. Though publicly he would not admit to that at the time. He's now an ex-official, so he does admit to that. But initially he wouldn't. He called me privately and said, you know, you did, you did, you did of every reporter, you've done the best job that has been done of us. Um, and, you know, and that's continued on. I mean, I... Right now, the church has issued some kind of denunciation of me and my reporting techniques. You know, sort of a pat, 11 page, it's 11 pages, statement about me, um, or whatever, about my sources, and you know, sort of trying to denounce my sources, and you know, which is all, you know, frankly kind of bullshit. And that's, you know, I actually applaud this. If this is all that I'm gonna get, I know I'm like taking a risk saying this stuff, but I'm really not that afraid. Yay, Scientology, because it's such good PR for you to not sue anybody. I mean, if you really want to improve your, you know, your membership, I mean, my book is about the history of this church and about, you know, the experiences of people in the church, some of whom really truly believe in this and are so sad that they had to leave. And if you want to retain those people and turn this religion into a real religion that is going to, to survive and evolve and grow and, and, and thrive, even if it doesn't grow, it can still thrive within its own community, you have to embrace your history and you have to be um, less afraid and less angry. And so if you allow people to investigate you and write about you and interview people that have been disaffected and interview people that still are loyal, you know, that's wonderful. Without, without causing them great problems or making them feel afraid, that's wonderful. And I, so far, have not felt very afraid. So I applaud whatever they are doing or not doing. You know, I'm, a, I'm all right with it. But I know that a colleague of mine, another reporter, is writing about Scientology, and he has been harassed, or his, you know, he's been free to, an entire issue of a Scientology magazine has been devoted to Lawrence Wright from the New Yorker, um, who wrote about Paul Haggis is leaving the church. And, you know, so they're going through a different experience. Um, again, though, eight months after that article came out, if that's the worst they're going to do, I mean, you know, that's not going to do anything to his career. So, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think there's, a, we're in a new era with the church, and um, I, I hope we are. I think it would behoove them that if we were. <laughs> I think that 
they have to pick their battles. I think that when I was doing the magazine piece, I actually was told by Mike Rinder, the spokesman, that they had recognized that they were looking like, if they sued, they look like a big litigious monster. If they don't sue, they allow people to say whatever they want about them. And so they have to decide which is, most imp which is important. Um, but, you know, I think that it's not about money. I think they certainly have money to, to sue anybody if they want to. It's about, you know, I think it's about public image. And I, David Miscavige, you know, for whatever you want to say about the guy, is very concerned with image. And, um, I'm sorry, what? He wouldn't want to sue a female? With my gender? I don't think he could care less. I mean, they sued Paulette Cooper 18 times, you know? I mean, that, I don't think that has any bearing on... Um, they're so, they're, I don't think me being a woman, I don't know, I don't think me being a woman has anything to do with it. I think it's, it's you know, uh, look, I wrote a really, this book is very well researched and very, it was extremely well vetted. It has a tremendous amount of notes. It has a very thorough bibliography. Uh, there isn't a book about Scientology like that has this level of documentation. This isn't like, you know, I, I looked at people's books like Lawrence Wright's, you know, Looming Tower or the book on the CIA by Tim Weiner or those kinds of books and I replicated basically what they did in their notes and their bibliographies. I was very, very, very thorough. Much more thorough than even my editor at Hood Mifflin would have wanted because I wanted to make sure that this was covered. And I feel pretty, you know, I, don't, I feel like, you know, tell the truth, do a good job, do your job, cover your ass. You're all right. I, 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 anyway, that's what I believe. I hope to God that I'm right, but that's what I believe. Yes. That must have been my editor's PR copy. Um, sorry. I do think they have some kind of staying power. They've stayed, I mean, they, they have, um, it's just a line, a line that I don't use. That must have been a promotional thing, but um, it's, um, they do, they have, they have, well, they've survived within the culture, they've survived in our society, look at the, look at that big building down there on Sunset, I mean, they are here, I mean, you drive around Los Angeles, man, and you really think they are major, you know, I mean, I don't feel that way in New York at all, but you certainly feel that here, I certainly feel that way in Florida, where they have a big presence, um, they do have staying power, and they have money, and they have, um, they have these, these, you know, social betterment programs we're talking about that have woven their way into our culture in various ways. Um, they have influence in surprising places, and um, I do think that they have a certain degree of staying power. I don't think they're going away anytime soon, for sure. Yes. Uh, two years ago, the neighbor bars passed away, and as a state sale, we walked in, and an entire room had like built-in bookshelves covered with, you know, filled with uh, lessons and things like that, text or whatever they're called. And what is the average amount that a psychology member spends on, on text and things like that? On re how much money? Yeah. You know, I mean, ah, oh God, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I. Thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, the current collection of books is like eight thousand dollars. Like the current, you know, and they are, and that, you know, I don't. I mean, I've met a guy that spent, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars or something, or a hundred thousand dollars on his collection because he has like these limited editions of books, and he has like a gold e-meter that cost I can't remember exactly. It's in my book exactly how much. He was he had an entire. Just to give you an idea, I mean, there's this great guy who was living in Florida when I met him, who uh, named Mike Henderson, who, um, you know, was a really successful businessman. He lived out here in LA for a long time, and he was in Florida. He was um, married to a veterinarian. They were very, living a very nice life, and they had they were private pilot. They drove, had, flew private planes. They basically went through millions of dollars. Um, the wife is only in it for 10 years. He was in it for like 30 years. She spent like a tremendous amount of money. They went through it and, you know, all of their money. They, were, they had to sell their planes. They had an empty hangar. And they went and joined the C organization, the Scientology Management. And, um, and then uh, 
got sick of it after a very short time and left, actually successfully just walked out and said, screw this. They had become these very, before this they were OTs, they were these big exalted members, very high up there. Um, had, you know, were among the very elite. And so when they became, they were like OT7 or OT8, the very top. And so when they joined the C organization, they, they were like, screw this, and they left. And they were like, screw you guys, you know, and they dropped, they dropped out totally. And when I met him, he was selling his Scientology stuff on eBay, and they filled up his entire airplane hangar. And I mean, this must have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff. It was the whole hangar. And he was like, you know, so he was very sad. But he was selling, he was like putting it all on eBay and selling it off. And yes? Does Oh no, they'll take anybody. But I think to stay in, you have to pay. That's one of the cru you know one of the cruxes of Scientology is it's pay as you go religion, and you have to pay. So, I mean, a question that a lot of people ask me actually is um, uh, why they're reaching into the developing world right now, what they think they're going to get from that. Because you you know, they, for example, they have they have a big presence in Haiti, where I was just working and uh, doing a story, and they have a presence in a lot of countries that are you know poor, and it's a good question. I don't really have an answer to that. Um, maybe somebody else does. Well, some, there's, a, there's a theory that it's like they're hoping to get labor out of that or some kind of free labor out of that, but, yeah, right? Kind of what I was going to say, I mean, there's all those tiers where there are wealthy people, but the poor people are in the Sea Org. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of poor people in the Sea Org. They, they see it as a way to advance. Um, but they didn't join to be in the Sea Org. They joined with more money, and then they became poor, and then they joined the Sea Org. Some people joined poor. Oh, really? Saw the Sea Org as a way to, you know, survive huh. even. Um, but I was going to ask you: Did you notice among the wealthy people that they really didn't mind spending a fortune on Scientology stuff because they saw it as key to why they were wealthy, and they would never have been wealthy. Yeah. In their opinion. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's absolutely that. You know, first of all, they were, they were. Um, I didn't know that. I personally had not met people that were poor who joined the sea. I knew I met people who were middle class. You know, middle class, very middle middle class, who tried to do Scientology, just could not afford to do it, and then joined the Sea Org. But I never met like, you know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's maybe it's different because it's really expensive now, and um, I I just I don't understand how, you know, uh, somebody from a a really poor background, like a peasant background, even would be able to do that. Um, but that's another book for somebody else to do research on on the international side of it. But and and certainly in terms of the wealthy people, you know, everyone I met who did Scientology in any regard that was wealthy had attributed their wealth to being in Scientology. Attributed. Would never, would never not spend money on Scientology because this is what they were, they were improving the world by doing this. They were making, they, be, they believed every bit of the hype that they were sold and that, you know, it was like a pyramid sort of, you know, scheme in a way. In that way, it's that multi-level marketing idea where it's like you're getting rewarded the more that you give in, the more you get back. So, it's like a, it's a prosperity gospel actually. Yes. Hi. Well, okay, um, a lot. One of the things that about Scientology that for, uh, I didn't understand was that it had its own language. And um, there were some girls that I met early on who explained to me their whole saga. Well, I'll tell you two stories. Um, one of them I was actually going to read, but it's a long story. Um, these two girls were from Los Angeles, from very, very, very uh, elite Scientology families. Um, one of them is Kendra Wiseman, whose father is Bruce Wiseman. He's the head of this, used to be head of the CCHR, and one of her friends. Um, and they left the Church of Scientology when they were teenagers. Now, Kendra went through a moment of, her moment of rebellion came when she realized, she went across the street from the Celebrity Center and, um, what's the story now? Oh, oh. and she, 
and she saw crystals that she, she was really interested in this like crystal store and this was and she decided she wanted to become a Wiccan and the next thing you know she was um, deciding not to be a Scientologist and she was punished for it and put through tremendous pressure so excuse me for a second can I just get a glass of water sure sorry I'm just all of a sudden going whew actually I think that's going to be the last question but I'm going to answer that personally to you because it's a long story and I'm getting kind of tired guys so <laughs> okay and I'll just sign books Great. Sorry about that. I'm just like all of a sudden my energy level goes. Whoops. I've talked a long time. Right, thanks. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.